welcome to the Nerdogram Podcast. The ultimate mashup between the Enneagram personality tool and all your favorite characters from film, TV, and literature. On today's episode, we are typing the characters from Dune. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Nerdogram Podcast. My name is Lance. And my name is Kate. Kate, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Nothing too exciting going on this week in the Mathena household. How about you? It is always an adventure in the life of toddlers and things. We are gearing up for my second season as a coach of three and four-year-olds. Soccer? Yeah, yeah. I'll be joining you in the uh, coaching life. Uh, I am assistant coaching for the eight and under team. And my husband is head coaching for the six and under team. And the only thing I know about soccer is what I learned by watching Bend It Like Beckham and by reading a romance novel series about some professional football players in England. So obviously I'm going to be very qualified for this. There might be things you probably don't want to take into your coaching experience from that, but you know, it's now there's some great resources. Remind me to send you a thing that I use and it's really great because it's got a whole list of like fun games and workouts. Yeah. I'll, I'll pass that on to my husband. I'm happy that my head coach has done this before and she actually like played soccer. And so she oh, knows good. what she's doing. Yeah. Uh, but it'll be, it'll be fun or it'll be terrible, but You know, either way, my kids are going to play soccer and hopefully enjoy the experience and I'll be there to cheer them on and round up soccer balls. Yeah, I'm coming at this with very different expectations this season. I was talking with my parents and I said, all right, guys, here's the here's the deal. First game. The goal here is that most of the team doesn't cry. So that's that is our first goal in this. Aim high, friend. Aim high. Last season, our first game, there was a point in the game where all of the kids on my team were crying and refused to come onto the field. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, guys. <laughs> kids are crazy. This week, my four-year-old did something that I'm not sure if I should be impressed or terrified of what this means. Uh, but we have one video game in our household that my kids are allowed to play at Star Wars Lego. But the rule is they can only play it when daddy's home because mommy does not know how to do any of that stuff. And I really don't care to learn. And, you know, oh, this isn't working. I don't know how to fix that. And so it just creates headaches if RC's not home. And it's it's a good way of like managing screen time as well. So it's not an option until he's home from work in the afternoon and whatnot. But uh, it was Saturday and my husband was working somewhere else and he was a couple hours away and I knew not to expect him home until about 3 p.m. This was maybe around noon or something. So I knew he wasn't home and wasn't going to be home. But my four-year-old goes into uh, our laundry room, which is where our garage door is, where we come in and he opens and closes the door. And then he makes some like big, heavy thud steps And then he waits a spell. And then he comes into the family room with me and says, daddy is home, but he's going potty right now. 
but he said that I could go ahead and start the Star Wars game. And he had a perfectly straight face. This was a bold face lie with the expression of innocence. I'm like, this is why your preschool teachers think you're an angel and they're wrong. <laughs> like, I just looked at him like, I cannot believe you just lied to me. He's like, no, he's just going potty. I'm like, no, he's not. He's on the other side of the state. <laughs> so he lost his uh, screen time privileges for the day, but it was really hard not to laugh because that's really complex. It was a plan. Yeah. He put some work into it. He did. Like, what does this mean for his teenage years? Oh my gosh. You know, you just have to fool them once to think to, so they'll think you're just all knowing. Back when I worked with, with teenagers, there was a time when I, and I had this kid who was, you love them. Why do we always love the the score of the kids? I I don't know. And I told him because he tried to pull a stunt, and it was the most obvious junior high thing in the world. And so, of course, I was ready for it. We handled it. He go, I said, "Man, you can't pull this stuff with me. I know everything. I can read your mind." He's like, "No, you can't. Try me, buddy. Try me." He goes fine. How many fingers am I holding up behind my back? And he sticks his hands behind his back. And I go, three. And he pauses and his eyebrows kind of shoot up. And he looks over at one of his friends. And he goes, how many now? Seven. He's like, how? How many now? Six. No, now nine. And he's like, how is he doing that? And he's, I was like, I can read your mind. And he's like, really? And I go, you're standing in front of a mere genius. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have mentioned the mirror and just let them oh. think that I'm like clairvoyant or something. Oh yeah. I thought about it, but I didn't think I could keep it up forever. You know, it was, oh, it was a great moment. <laughs> My favorite was when I was, uh, I taught uh, youth Sunday school at my church and I was new and um, my kids, they were in I think this group of boys, I think they were in seventh grade at the time and they're listening to some music. And of course they look at me and they think, Oh, she's just the goody two shoes. She doesn't know anything about anything. And so they're playing some like heavy rock. And at the time I knew a bit more about non-Christian music. And that wasn't, I didn't just listen to Christian music and I knew what they were listening to. And I was like, oh, guys, turn that off. That's not appropriate for Sunday school. They're like, no, no, no. This is three days grace. Which admittedly sounds like a very Christian type of band name. And I'm like, yep, I got I got one of their albums. Turn it off. <laughs> and they just looked at me like, what? Oh, yeah. They'll always try to pull one over on you. That was fun. And it's great when they're not your kids. I don't know how to feel about when it's my kids. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading something about Jim Gaffigan, which Jim Gaffigan has the best parenting humor he's like five kids and he, he said it just keeps getting worse <laughs> <laughs> and i think the quote i read that a, a poopy baby diaper smells sweet compared to a teenage boy's anything <laughs> it's like okay that's probably true um, but then i i was i felt better because i met with someone today who's uh, she's a mom and her kids have launched her youngest just is a freshman in college. She's like, it just keeps getting better. And I was like, Oh my God. 
<laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just gonna hope that you're right, not Jim Gaffigan. Yeah, I don't know. It's their moments. I'm like, ooh, ooh, children of mine. Like, I love you, but mm-hmm. your faces right now. <laughs> I just can't wait to get to the point where I no longer wipe anyone else's butt. Mm. That will be a good day, but I no longer have to do that. I'm I'm in that place where I just assume that I will always have to do that. Yeah, the moment of despair of this is my life and this is all that will ever be. <laughs> well, if we wait long enough, then it'll come back around. They have to wipe ours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're assuming I won't have traumatized my my children to the to the point that they won't take care of me. <laughs> oh. oh. Well, speaking of dutiful little boys who take care of their parents, we we do have one in our our stuff for this week. That was a good transition. I was I really not sure how we were going to transition from butt wiping. I impressed myself, and <laughs> that is not hard to do. But I did it. So, audience, we're talking about Dune today, specifically the new movie with timothy chalamet uh we both watched it i watched it today when did you watch it yesterday yesterday and uh we're really lucky that lance has read all the books and remembers them i read dune about 15 years ago to impress a boy and remember very little of it so you are going to be bringing your character knowledge to this conversation because I got to tell y'all up front, folks, I really do not know how to type these characters. The movie is fabulous. It rightfully won six awards, many of them, and was nominated for others. Things like music and cinematography and score. It's beautiful. It's really well done. There's a lot of walking on sand. And that does not convey a lot about one's personality. Yeah, I I guess... Having read the books, I really wanted to see this at theaters, and I am a parent of small children, and it did not happen as much as I would have liked it to. So I was happy to purchase this film because I kind of already knew I was going to like it. I sussed it out with some other people, and they're like, oh, it's really good. So I came in with high high hopes and high expectations because I have loved the Dune series. I've read the main ones by Frank Herbert um, multiple times. Um, some of the other ones like the Butler Hearing Jihad and some of those other ones I've only read like once, but still really good. So I was very excited and I was not disappointed. I, I really enjoyed the movie and I watched the older one, the eighties version with sting. And I enjoyed it about as much as I enjoyed the book, which is to say not that much. Um, but I, I really thoroughly enjoyed watching this. It was beautiful. It was well acted. Timothy Chalamet knocks my socks off. I have yet to see him in something that I don't think he's done a fabulous performance. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that you read Dune to impress a boy. Like that sounds like something I would have done in junior high and did do not that I read a book, but I was like, oh yeah, I'm totally into that band. And I'm an Enneagram too. What what will I not do to make someone love me? You would do anything for love, but you won't do that. <laughs> is that meatloaf? Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so is meatloaf then a two in that song? <laughs> a two who's working on his boundaries. I reached a point. Yeah. 
Huh, I wonder where Paradise by the Dashboard Lights fits into his Enneagram number. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, I knew every, I probably still would, but I know just about every word of that song. I'm not sure what to think about that. <laughs> I learned it. Where did I learn it? So I, um, my high school had a radio station and I did radio and we actually had the, we're from Indiana. So we had the longest running radio station in the state of Indiana since 1948. We'd been broadcasting WNAS. I believe it's 88.9. If you live in the Louisville Metro area and you want to go there. So there's a little plug. Um, but we played that song all the time because it was risque and we were 16, 17 and 18 years old. And so that's the kind of stuff we played on our radio station. I just remember in college, our radio station, because we had college students who were wanting to pursue film, you know, careers and radio and things like that. And I remember one of the college students that I knew we were listening to support them and they got stuck knowing they needed to fill the silence and they blurted out that's baby making music right there and it was so funny. <laughs> oh man antics of youth i'm so glad that there are only a few recordings of me out there where i did things like this that i have to worry about them resurfacing i know it's such a good thing to you and i came of age right on the cusp of the social media era and Facebook was a thing for both of us in high school. But I know when I was in high school, you had to have a college up until my senior year, you had to have a college email address in order to have a Facebook and Instagram wasn't really a thing anymore. MySpace. So MySpace was like, Oh yeah. Who was your top five? Well, it changed because I was passive aggressive and I would move it around when I was mad at my friends. Or feeling unloved by them. I was that cool kid where, uh, who is the guy who we we're all friends with? Oh, the creator. Is it Tim Todd? No. I feel like it's something it? with a T. I put him in my top Tom. five. Tom. Tom was in my top five. Yeah. I always had my, whoever my significant other was, and then my bestie. But if I was feeling unloved, I would like move more guys into my top five because again, <laughs> passive aggressive. <laughs> Wanting to make somebody jealous because I was a, you know, adolescent young adult too, who was not managing my personality well. Oh, oh, I didn't play those games. I I, I wasn't into all that. My wife, my now wife was probably in my top five and Tom. And then I don't know who else I put in there. Cool bands. Would you put Frank Herbert on your top five? Mm, Maybe. Probably at the time I would have, because I started reading, I read Dune the first time in high school and I was blown away. It was so good. I'm glad you enjoy it. I do. And I like sci-fi, but typically I'm more fantasy than I am sci-fi. But Dune is just one of those that's a landmark. It is. And it's a it's a well-written book. I haven't read the whole series, but it's, it's captivated a lot of people. Uh, Dune was released in 1965. So it's been around a while and it's it's stood the test of time. People still fall in love with this book. I mean, we're making another adaptation in 2022 and and it's good and it's and it's worth a good film adaptation. And so I understand why people love it, even though it's not my thing. There's a board game, a Dune board game that was made in the 80s or after the film came out. 
that is supposedly like the best thing ever. And I've never played it, but they've done a reprint of it. Like they've re-updated it. I think I should at some point pick that up as a big board game nerd. Definitely should. Like I'm the guy who shows up to gatherings of people and chances are I've got some game in my backpack. Do you know that every time we went to those work events, I had a game in my backpack or up, up in my room. Literally every time. We should have played more games. Yeah. You didn't know how cool I was, guys. Super cool. I didn't know you hit it well. <laughs> that sounds like an insult. I didn't mean it like an insult. <laughs> that hit hard. I'm sorry. I really didn't mean that to sound so snarky and mean. I'm just thinking you, you hit your... I have gotten to see, since we've been doing the podcast, I've gotten to see a different side of you. And I really enjoy like the playfulness and the the hobbies and the things you're into. Like I knew little bits and pieces of it, uh, but I feel like I've gotten to know so much more about all of the many hobbies that you have that I wouldn't have imagined. And I'm sure I'm only scratching the surface because I think you probably have about 20 times the hobbies most people have. Oh, I definitely hold it back. Yeah. (laughs) Well, are you ready to start talking about some of these characters? I have never been more ready. I'm, I'm just kidding. so glad I have been actually more ready at other times, but I'm really ready to talk about these characters. I'm glad because you are, you are driving the ship, landing the plane, whatever other kind of metaphor for taking the lead. I am folding space like, like the, the ship engineer. If that's not some deep dune work for you. All right. I might need a little spice to follow along with that, but I, I mean, think I got you. You need spice to, I'm going to nerd out all over this podcast just before warned, like it's happening. Cause you need the, um, actually you need the spice to fold space. Like it's, it's how it works. It's how the engines work. All right. Well, let's start off with the character. Is it Raven? Rabin? Rabin. Rabin. Okay. Rel- Tell us Rabin. about Rabin. So Rabin is a, this is going to be a weird podcast. My description for him is he's a meat club. He's not all that bright. He's just big, beefy, bulky, and he bowls his way through everything. He's very violent. He he has a lot of violent tendencies. A little history on him. He comes from a family uh, that is actually really peaceable for Harkonnens. They're kind of like good, nice people, and they're really embarrassed by how vicious he is. And he at times goes and like commits murders in their area, just despite his family, just because this is who I am. And mm-hmm. so I get a strong sense of Rabin kind of being in that eight space where it's an eight unchained, someone who is just mm. all kinds of powerful. He, he dumb, like he, he's not real bright, but he has a purpose and he's useful to the Baron really as someone who just, squeezes and crushes i mean we get that he says i want you to squeeze everything you can from dune because he's the right guy for the job in that he's mm. cruel he enjoys hurting people um yeah i, I get a sense of a, a the, all the bad qualities of an eight mm, that would be such an interesting case study of i think the phrase you used was an eight unchained what does it look like to have all of that power within yourself all that energy all that anger without having any mechanism within yourself to restrain the baser and crueler impulses without having a moral compass. Because a lot of eights use that power for really incredible things. They can hurt people along the way as just about any eight can 
will tell you, yeah, I've hurt people without even intending to hurt people because of flying off the handle or the way I managed my anger or didn't manage my anger. But when you have a character who is embracing that side of himself, that's pretty interesting. I mean, terrible, but interesting since they're fictional. Yeah. The amount of harm that actually emerges from him is not real, but he's pretty vicious. Mm. And granted, it's the Harkonnens, right? The Harkonnens are supposed to be the bad guys. They're supposed to be all kind of the worst things. Well, speaking of Harkonnen, how would you type Baron Vladimir Harkonnen? So he is hyper competent. Early on in the books, he is very obsessed with his own looks. He's very vain and to the degree that he's always working out. He's always like meticulous about how he eats, how he dresses. He's very conscientious of his body and how other people view it. He takes a lot of pleasure and pride in it. That ultimately becomes a, a weapon from somebody else. I told Kate there's some sexual assault that happens there, and the Bean Jesuit punish him. And what they take away is his body. Uh, they they infect him with a disease that makes his muscle tone uh, over time just go lax. He struggles to even walk at a certain point. That's why he wears. It's uh, so a belt that helps him sort of float. We see that in the film. He floats all over the place. It's because he can't actually physically carry himself anymore. So what he does, because he's so image conscious, is he leans into it and he tries to take it to the other extreme. He intentionally gorges himself on food. He intentionally does these things because he doesn't want other people to know. He's so image conscious that mm-hmm. this has happened to him. This is outside of what he's doing. He's choosing it because he wants to be so wealthy and so powerful that he's opulent. And so he lets himself become uh, physically overweight as a, as a sign of, oh, this is how, pow- how, how successful I am, that I just gorge myself. Um, and so it's that image consciousness and his competency. He has a mind for scheming and for, for hatching these big overarching plans but the purpose of all of his plans is always to further his success and the success of his house. And so he's very successful at what he does. He assassinates multiple dukes from House Atreides. Uh, he has two that he actually works in NX plans to assassinate them. Both we see uh, Leto ultimately gets assassinated and his father gets assassinated by the Baron. You know, to be able to mastermind this, this house war that he can finally win up over the Atreides is just shows just how competent he is at the politics, at the amounts of money that needs to be moved around to transport large amounts of troops between worlds, because you get a little sense of that, that it's so expensive for them to send that delegation there. He masterminds all of that and he has plans on how to pay for it. That's why he comes through and squeezes Dune so hard afterwards because they're paying the debts of that because he's planned for that. He knew exactly how long they needed to, uh, the assault for Dune needed to be and what they needed to hold over the Emperor to get the Sardaukar troops. So I lean towards a three with him, but Mm -hmm. sort of like how Rabin is an unchained eight. um, Vladimir Harkonnen is kind of the worst qualities of the three. Mm. Yeah. And the key things that you you said there, you started with competent. And so if we look at the harmonic pattern, how we 
how we deal when we don't get what we want or when we face disappointment, ones, threes, and fives will, will face their disappointment with competency or logic or reason. And then you use the expression image conscious and any number can be image conscious, but uh, twos, threes, and fours tend to be the most image conscious in the feeling triad. And so the overlap between those two, between the competency and the image consciousness is the three. And then of course, you use the phrase vanity. He's so vain and vanity is the shadow side of the three. Every number has good things about themselves and every number has bad things about themselves. And what is the the dark side or the passion of the three is vanity. So yeah, it sounds like you hit the nail on the head with your description of Baron Harkonnen being sneaky. And then of course, threes are driven to succeed and they're generally quite good at succeeding and, and hatching plans and making them happen. They're very goal oriented. Um, I've said before, one of my besties is a three and she always has goals that she's working on and, and, and taking an afternoon and, and making a list of goals is really fun and soothing to her in a way that it would not be for me as uh, I can be goal oriented, but not, not in the same way that a three is. But when your goals are evil, you're probably going to accomplish some really terrible things and be good at it. And that's what we see with this particular character. Not that it's evil to want the best for your house, but he's more than willing to crack a few eggs to get his goals met. I mean, if you're going to murder thousands and hundreds of thousands of people and steal and kill and destroy, I mean, that. It, it's, it's wanting the best for your house is not the same thing as being willing to harm other people for the sake of your house. This is true. I'm glad. I'm glad we're on the same page there. <laughs> Were you concerned a little bit that I was like, no, no, I think we can find a moral no. gray in this space. Uh, you know? I mean, I want the best for my family too, but I don't want to kill a bunch of people so that my kids have more money or whatever. <laughs> have a better a better <laughs> position of privilege and power. So those are the baddies. Mm-hmm. We also have some goodies. A lot of goodies. So tell us about Gurney Halleck. So we don't see a lot of Gurney in the film. Uh, spoilers, friends. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. If you've seen the film and haven't read the book. So if you haven't read the books but you have watched the movie. There's a little bit of a spoiler here because Gurney does come through. Um, it alludes to the fact that he probably died in the battle, but in the books, he doesn't. He, he does come back. Um, but Gurney's deal, and it doesn't fully come across. We get some nods from Paul. He says, oh, I'm not in the mood to fight. Why don't you sing me a song, girly? Uh, girly. Gurney. Mm-hmm. Because that's Gurney's deal, is that he has this overabundance of singing and songs. Um, for me, the tension is, is he a seven or is he a four? And, and here's why his history is not a, a nice one. He actually comes from the Harkonnen home world, Gidi prime. And in it, he has a habit of, he's kind of the rogue. He's always kind of making funny songs and singing. And he actually begins making funny songs that make fun of the Baron and get the attention of some of the soldiers. So they take his sister and they put her in a pleasure house. 
and he goes and he tries to rescue her. And there's this process that we watch Gurney get broken down, broken down, broken down until eventually he escapes Giddy Prime and goes and finds himself with House Atreides. And then he rises to the place that he is. So he's always got some of this, a, a bit of it. I lean more towards the seven because we see sort of the joy with Gurney. He's uh, always, uh, he's a great leader of his soldiers because he's always singing songs and he's funny. And he just has this way about him that people feel attached. They, they navigate towards him sort of unconsciously. That's why Leto comes to trust him so, so intently. You wouldn't think that someone from your arch enemy's home planet would be in your inner circle, but he kind of earns his way there because of the joy that he brings in the books. He's always singing. He's always quoting poetry. He, he just has a way. Um, so I lean more towards the seven, but I think a case might be made for the four. Had I read through all the books again, I might be able to make a better typing, but that's kind of where I'm at now. So let's talk about some of the differences between the four and the seven and some of the similarities and uh, to give our audience a better sense of, of why those numbers might look close when they can also be quite different. And then maybe you'll be more confident in your typing or come to a different idea. So the thing that binds the four and the seven are the things that look very similar between those two numbers is the intensity of their happiness and their joy. So sevens are very joyful people. They tend to be very happy, very fun, loving, lots of energy, especially uh, when they're having a good time can be the life of the party. Fours aren't always like this, but fours can be like this because they experience emotions pretty intensely. They have very low lows, but they also can have very high highs. Fours and sevens are both pretty entrepreneurial. They like to do new things. They like to start up. Neither of them like to be confined or in a box. They don't like to be dictated to what they need to do or who they need to be or how they ought to present themselves. Both of them like to keep options open, but for different reasons. So there's some overlap. You can also have sevens that are drawn to experience. And we see fours tend to have a particular aesthetic. Often they like the arts. That can be a stereotype. Not every four is artsy fartsy, but a whole lot of them are, which is why that stereotype exists. But you also have some sevens who really like the fine things of life and enjoying food or enjoying clothing or having a particular aesthetic or whatever that may be. And those things can look really fourish. The differences are really how they deal with sadness and how they deal with disappointment. So a seven is in the positive outlook and they're going to try to reframe negatives into a positive. They're going to make lemonade out of lemons or find that silver lining. And they're going to work really hard to do that. I have a, a, a friend, I did a typing interview actually just this last week and we learned she she's a seven. And one of the things she said about herself is that she she likes glitter and sparkle in her, in her world and in her life. And she will work really hard to find the glitter in a situation. And she had recently gone through a really hard, kind of just crazy hard family thing. And she couldn't find... She couldn't find the glitter and it was like hitting a wall. It was really, really hard for her. And 
she ultimately came to a place where she's like, at least something good will come out of this because I'll be able to help people because of this experience. So even then kind of coming to that, the other side of it, she's still reverting to that positive outlook. A four is not going to do that. A four is going to say, this sucks. This is shit. I hate my life. The world is awful. And they're just going to sit in that space and they may or may not come through it. They may, they may stay like, nope, this situation is just crap and there's nothing good to be found in it. And and they're going to embrace that low where a seven is constantly going to be bucking it and trying to get back to a place of not just equilibrium, but a place of happiness because they run from pain. Whereas a four can sit in their pain, maybe even too much, but certainly in a very different way than a seven. So as you think about those things, where do you see Gurney fitting into that? Because I really don't know a whole lot about Gurney. I don't remember him very well from the books. I think I still lean towards the seven. At his lowest, we see truly awful things have happened to him. He's been injured in some ways. They've tried to injure him so that he won't be able to play the lute anymore. Um, Horrible things happen to his sister, who he just adores. And I think that'll send any of us into a, a dark place. But he finds the joy again. It's after he leaves and he goes through a very painful process to come back. There's very much like a hero's journey kind of kind of thing for him. But he does come out joyful in the end. Yeah. I'm going to go with the seven right now. I, I might be able to be convinced of other numbers, but I think that's where I, I land for now. Sounds good to me. Well, next on our list, we have Duncan Idaho played brilliantly by Jason Momoa. Duncan Idaho is my favorite character in the books. Why is he your favorite character? Ah, he's spunky. He's a survivor. He just, he gets it done and he keeps coming back and, and, it's interesting when he, they bring him back and he doesn't have the trauma of his childhood that it shows up in different ways and how he, his earnestness, I just, I just love him. And I so want them to just skip ahead and go ahead and use Jason Momoa and do God Emperor Dune. Like you can come back, do Children of Dune later. That's fine. We don't even have to have any of the same, same actors and actresses for that. that I, don't, I don't care about that, but we need God Emperor Dune with Jason Momoa as Duck in Idaho. Like this needs to happen. Somebody make it happen, please. Uh, interesting piece about Duncan Idaho is he is also born on Giddy Prime, the House Harkonnen's home world. So two of the major players in the Atreides household actually are grow up underneath House Harkonnen. Duncan has it rough as a child. He he is actually rounded up at one point by Rabin because Rabin likes to hunt children. Um, and so he gets hunted by Rabin and he survives and not just survives, like does it well. And so he is so good at what he does because he's a survivalist. That's why they send him first to Dune because if anybody can find and connect and earn the respect of uh, of the Fremen, it's going to be Duncan Idaho. How that types, I'm not fully sure. I definitely find him in the competency. Part of me wonders, he, he feels like a five to me. 
like someone who has cultivated a certain set of skills that he's prepared and can adjust. Part of that is storytelling. When Duncan says they came to kill me and when the Furman come and kill you in the desert, it's not, it's, it's interpreted as they're just vicious people who kill everyone, but it's really for two reasons. One, because they're heavily territorial. They protect their own. And two, you're literally, yeah, you're water. I mean, you, you are literally a survival thing and their ultimate, the Fremen have their secret goal that they're trying to re uh, redo Arrakis as they call it or Dune so that it becomes a green planet. And so they're quietly hoarding water so that they can change the, the ecosystem of the planet. So what's one more person like toss them in. We're going to, we're going to get that much closer to our goal because they've even figured out exactly how much water they'll need to do it. And so they, they're very intent on that. And I know him saying I had to kill one of them to be accepted is a nod to what, what Paul's coming up against, what Paul's going to have to do to be accepted. But it really does point to this competency. So if we're looking at the competency harmonic, we're looking one, three, five. I don't think he's a one, not that he's not principled, but he'll stab, stab someone in the back. Like if that, if that's what's required to survive, Mm -hmm. he'll do it. Um, His childhood wound is full of fear and pain and the need to be prepared. Um, I don't see him as a three. He doesn't seem to be image conscious. He doesn't seem to be success oriented. A lot of what he does is be prepared. And that's what earns the attention from Leto is that this young man, this child comes, comes over here and is so good at surviving. Mm. So good at seeing danger. Can you flesh out why you see him as a five instead of a six, which is kind of the more obvious number? Because fives also prepare and they hoard, but they do that by like with knowledge and expertise is that is that what Duncan is doing, or is he mm-hmm. uh, is he scanning for danger? Is he preparing like a worst case scenario, preparing? He, he's not like a doomsday prepper level. It's more like he wants to cultivate the skills that he needs to not feel like he's in danger. For him, that wouldn't be hoarding book knowledge. It'd be hoarding survival knowledge. What so is I don't, his? Well, let me ask this question. So okay. I know you, you said you love Jason Momoa's performance. Do you feel like he captures Duncan from the books pretty mm-hmm. well? I do. He didn't feel like a five to me. He felt like he had a lot more energy than I expect a five to have. And is very, I didn't sense any snarkiness in him. Yeah, I think that was a little bit of the betrayal. I feel like he's a little snarkier in the books. In the books. Fair enough. I mean, I only have you to go on because, I mean, in my book, Jason Memo is a 10, but that's on a totally different scale. <laughs> it has nothing to do with any Enneagram. And, th- and that's fair, right? I mean, who doesn't want Jason Momo just to mutter Khaleesi at you? And, you know, it's... So funny story about him. I had a big crush on him in elementary school. Because he was in Baywatch Hawaii. And this was, was when he was young. He was like, I don't know, 21 or something. And I watched that show just because I thought he was so cute. <laughs> I was introduced to him through Game of Thrones, of which I had read the books 
before that that series, the HBO series came out. He's and, a great Cal Drogo. Oh, uh, when he rolled onto the scene, I was like, "This is Cal Drogo. This is perfect." Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm good with typing Duncan as a five. I mean, fives and sixes do have a lot of similar qualities. They both are in the fear triad, so they're very aware of danger and and very motivated to keep themselves safe. Generally, they're going to achieve safety in different ways. For a five, that tends to be in a cerebral way Mm -hmm. with knowledge. Uh, Fives tend to be lower energy than sixes. They tend to be a little more independent than sixes. Sixes are usually very interdependent. They they have trust issues and that extends to not trusting themselves and their own judgment. And so sixes like to have a committee of friends and family for a lot of their decisions. And sixes also can be great number twos because they're often very loyal. When they have a leader that they trust, they're incredibly loyal. It takes a lot to earn the trust of the six because they're so suspicious, more suspicious than fives. I think the word I would use for a five would be more cynical. They're not necessarily untrusting, but they're not trusting either. If that makes sense. I'm moving more towards the six a little bit. Oh, okay. Because of his suspicion of people. Mm. He does not trust other people, but he comes to love and trust Leto and becomes fiercely loyal Mm -hmm. to the Duke. Mm. And then to his son. Right. Just from what I saw, which was very limited because he's not in the movie a whole lot. He feels more like a six to me than a five, but there mm-hmm. are a lot of similarities between those two numbers. They're in the same triad. They have the same fear, the same general goal of safety. Um, and you could have be a five with a six wing or a six with a five wing and be taking on a lot of behaviors of the other number. I think I'd be happy in that space somewhere between the five and the six. Five and the six. Sounds good to me. Well, that takes us to the man that Duncan was so loyal to, who might be my favorite character, or at least my top two for the series. And that is the Duke Leto Atreides. It's it's a salt and pepper beard, isn't it? You know, it's not not a salt and pepper beard. <laughs> I kept staring at him and I was like, who is this? Like, I knew I recognized him from something, but I couldn't quite place him. And it's he's the guy who plays Poe mm-hmm. in Star Wars, the newer reboots. And it's, his name's Os- Oscar Isaac. And I mean, he's a very handsome man, but it's like that beard. It just gives him this look of authority and wisdom. And, and it's really handsome. It really is. He wears a uniform well. He does. And he, I love the scene where they are rescuing the spice miners because he, he's like, forget the spice. Let's save the people. And he, they see that they're going down the sandworms coming. A, a poor leader would say, oh, wow, too bad for them. That's unlucky. But he's like, no, how many people can we get on board diving in, risking his life, sending his son out to tell, make his son as a leader in training be the one to step into that gap. And I respect that so much. Seeing that made me really see him as a leader with integrity uh, who's worthy of the mantle. But he's also 
a very loving father. He says to Paul, even if you don't take this leadership, you will still be the only thing that really matters to me, which is my son. And that compassion is surprising because often when you see a character who's set up as this almost perfect leader, they tend to have very high expectations for their child who will take the reins. And he does, but he sees him as his son, not just his successor. He's dutiful. The thing that stands out to me is his sense of duty, which would be uh, the compliant or the dependent stance, which is a one, two, or six. Would you agree with that? I do. Do you remember, because I know you've read the book, do you remember the scene when they first come into Dune and they're in Adarkeen and they hold the dinner party? I don't remember. Sorry. Can you tell us about it? Yes. So the Harkonnens had a tradition that emerged while they ruled the planet where high nobility, you know, the upper echelon of society, when they would have these lavish dinner parties, they would have servants who would hold bowls of water and you would come in and you would wash your hands in these open bowls and then dry it off on these towels. And the whole point was you were supposed to be as wasteful as possible splashing the water over the side the floor would be dripping you just drop your wet towels on the floor because it was a sign of authority and power and wealth and a place where people are getting murdered and the streets for the water that's in their bodies i mean they've developed in this planet special gauze that when you slit someone's throat you slap it over there so that it soaks up as much of the water as possible that's pretty intense when we're talking about water conservation. So it's such an extravagant thing that when Duke Leto arrives, he encounters the tradition and he's horrified because this is wasteful. People are dying of thirst. Why are we spilling water on the floor as a sign of our own authority? And so he goes to get rid of the tradition. Jessica fights him on this. She says, this is their tradition. Yes, I realize the Harkonnens had a, a part of it, but if you do this, if you take it away from them, the leadership of this community is going to be against you because they're accustomed to showing off and they, they need to do that. They're going to continue doing that. So he starts a new tradition where he, there's towels and they gather up the water that's been spilt up and anyone who comes to the door during the feast can be given the water that was splashed around. So mm. he turns it into a social justice issue and, and fights for people. So does that narrow your typing down a little bit? Yeah. I I mean, you use the word social justice, which makes me think you think he's a one. I do think he's a one. Yes. <laughs> I could see him as a one. I could also see him as a two from what mm. I've experienced. Um, a healthier two. He cares he cares about duty, but he also cares about what some people think, particularly his father and wanting to have the approval of his father, even to the point where he didn't marry Jessica. Well, Jessica wasn't in the picture when his father died. Oh, that yeah, was the other chick. But it was, the, there was this sense of we need to not marry for love. That's what concubines are for. It's, it's political. That probably is the deciding factor. So like 
what he did to save the people, that's something a two would do because it's about a, a gut instinct to wherever you can help. And the same way a one has has this impulse to do what's right and to make things right. Twos have an impulse to help people because they are they have the gift of being able to see others and to see their value and to want to help. And when a two is healthy, it really is very altruistic. When a two is not healthy, then it can be manipulative. But you know, most most people are average, um, not necessarily unhealthy in their number. But because twos are so relational and our our core people mean so much to a two. Not that they don't mean so much to everybody else, but those relationships are so integral to our being. It is hard for me to imagine a two who has a sincerely loving relationship with a person who is his person, Jessica, you know, his person, that he would not do right by her in marrying her. Now he wasn't wronging her. She seems to be, have been like, she accepted her place as concubine and he didn't have another wife. So she had that head role and she was the mother of his heir and and those things. So I don't, I don't want to insinuate that he was wronging her, but he didn't give her the place that he could have. And he regretted it. At least in the movie, he says, I should have married you. And I, I think that's a one move more than a two move to forego that out of duty. I think a two in that instance would have said, my duty is to my person, not to my position. And he does that with the mother of his first child, where he takes her on as a concubine and she wants to be married to him because she was from at one time, a great house that has now fallen into disrepute and he loves her, but he won't make her his wife. And that becomes the first crack for them. And when they're having problems is when Jessica comes in the thing, when, when the, the it's intense between them, Jessica enters with her own instructions to seduce Leto and he won't, he will not do it. And let's, let's be honest. The bean Jesuit have super lady parts. Like they, they can seduce anybody they want and he holds out. That sounds like, sorry, we lost you there for a second. I say that sounds like a one to me. Yeah. I feel pretty confident, but yeah, I'm also a big fan of Leto, particularly in the early, early stages of his life. He does really cool stuff. What about Jessica? I think Jessica's reactive because she does things that she's not supposed to do. Initially she's, you know, she's being Jesuit. So she is tasked with coming and getting pregnant by Leto and having a girl because being Jesuit, can manipulate their bodies to have a child when they want to, to determine the sex of the child, all these things. She's instructed to go get baby, go get a girl, go get a girl, baby. That's your job. She doesn't do it. She doesn't do it because she loves Lido. She doesn't do it because she has her own questions, her own stuff. She seems to react to everything that happens. I kind of lean towards a six with her. She seems very aware of the dangers. She's very fearful for her son. I thought they did such a fantastic job in the film. As she's standing outside, you see her take her hands. She places her hands on her stomach and she's almost holding it. And she's always saying the litany against fear. Mm -hmm. Um, In the books, other people say the litany against fear as well. But in the movie, we only ever get that from her, Mm. which I think is telling of what they were communicating about her character that comes out through the books. 
but it's hard to share without getting those internal insights. I thought the same thing, the, the litany against fear, but she, she said that at least twice, Mm -hmm. maybe three times. Um, That to me looked like something that was practiced, looked like something that was part of her personal discipline and ritual. And, and what I'm hearing from you is that it wasn't just her, but there's something to that. Uh, any of it, we all feel experience fear, but if you're someone who's, who's memorized a mantra to help you manage your fear, I think that indicates that you experience quite a bit of it and have to battle it regularly. That to me feels a little more six-ish. She, she is dutiful. She does what other people tell her to do. She puts her son in a room where she knows he might die because her superior has told her that she must. She breaks the rules by having a boy, but she's still going to give him a girl later. So she she's willing to bend a little. She never completely breaks away. She is not the author of her own destiny. Despite how powerful she is, she's going along with other more powerful people around her. She's not a natural risk taker. She wants her son to go back off world. She doesn't want to stay with the Fremen. That doesn't seem like the reasonable, safest path in her mind. That's reasonable. Everything's been blowing up. They've been chased by a giant worm with huge teeth. You know, makes sense to want to go. Awful. Yeah, can't can't really blame her for that. I wouldn't want to live in Arrakis either. Yeah, she she seems like a a six to me, and it's hard. From the film, we see aspects of her, but it's not like we're inside her head. So it's always hard to type some characters more than others, and I don't feel like we get to see as many defining moments for her. And as you said, she she's given a lot more strength and proactivity in the film than what she had in the book at least in dune you know and some of the other ones we see we see that strength we see those things so i, I felt like the the film did a fantastic job of showing her her inner self again the litany against fear is not hers that's a bean jesuit teaching that's something that paul uses it like everyone who's a bean jesuit uses it it's kind of a thing but i think giving that to her in the film really captured so much of the internal tension that we don't get because we don't get internal thoughts in this film. Not like the eighties version where we got everybody's internal thoughts all the time. We don't get that in this one. Yeah. I'm pretty happy to type her as a six. I feel pretty confident that she is in the fear triad and that she's in the dutiful stance. And so the overlap between that is the six, the fear triad is the five, six, and the seven, and then the dutiful or compliant or dependent, whichever kind of term you want to use stance is the one, two, and the six. So I feel good typing her as a six. Okay. I'm good with that. Okay. The character we've been waiting for, the one I'm actually really excited to talk about. Apologies. So what do you think about Paul? I think Paul off the bat is competent. He is so cool, calm, collected. He's in all of these super dangerous scenarios and he's handling it. He's just handling it. I love the scene. I think this is really telling when he's uh, going through the, the ship after the ship wrecks 
and the things that they have and the things that the doctors left for them. And I, what, what are the suits called? It's the still suits, the still suits. He's like, well, there's no still suit. The one thing that we actually really need. He is in logic, problem solving, competent mode, which to me automatically puts him as a one, three or five. Um, he is not very emotive and he's not particularly charming or like he, he can adapt, but he is not adaptive in the way I would expect a three to be where he seems to like come off as something different. He is competent. He studied the Fremen. So he, and he's having visions and seeing how they're wearing suits and things like that, but he is applying what he has learned and what he has studied. And something you pointed out is that he's not a person with, he's not a bad person, but he's not a person who is driven by this need to be good. He loves his father's memory and his house. And he he wants to do right by his family and he's going to care for his mom, his little sister and um, his the family he makes. And he creates alliances, but he's he's not on some moral high ground. And he even does some morally questionable things that a one probably wouldn't do. And so I I felt pretty strongly that he was a five. Wholeheartedly agree. I also leaned towards his competency. I think at times we see one, but I read that is he has a parent who's a one who he loves. Mm-hmm. And so we pick up some of those attributes from our parents. 100% his preparation. He becomes a well-known figure pretty rapidly amongst the Fremen, amongst his father's soldiers. There's a, a moment where Gurney Halleck comes to fight him and he says, stop sitting with your back to the door. And he says, well, I knew it would have been you. And he kind of scoffs at him, but we don't get the internal dialogue of, of Duncan Idaho there where Duncan goes, yeah, this kid probably would know that it was me and I probably couldn't fake. Someone probably couldn't trick him into thinking it was me. You know, he's prepared. He's done these things. He's Mm -hmm. gifted in ways, but in ways that smack eerily close to eugenics. Um, But yeah, I thought Timothy Chalamet really played this character wonderfully. He I was so drawn to him. And so it's no secret. I've said this before. My favorite number on the Enneagram is the five, which is why I'm married to one. And the fact that I'm married to one probably makes them more my favorite, but I, I just love fives and I have several fives in my life. It's like, I try to collect them or something. And I just found myself being so not attracted. Like he's cute. Although Timothy Chalamet is a cutie patootie. Um, He'll be really handsome when he's 40. That'll put him more in my my age range of interest you and your but salt and pepper beards i know i know um he, i just younger guys like he's super cute but i was watching the movie and i was texting you this oh i hope my boys take care of me the way he takes care of his mama like in my mind he is boy you no. might want to wait on that and see if you feel the same way after the second movie drops i do remember that he there's tension with his mom mm-hmm I don't remember what it was, but I do remember that there's a breakdown in relationship there. And um, does she like try to tell him what to do and get a little over invested in directing a his future? Bit. 
It's a little bit of that, a little bit of Chani. A little, I mean, there's multiple competing things. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, I, re- but I really appreciated how he cared for her and he was her champion and he didn't abandon her and he's stepping up and taking care of her. And I, I just, I loved that, but I'm so drawn to this person as his character. I find him such an attractive character and like, ah, he's probably a five. <laughs> if I like him this much, he's probably a five. That holds up. Right. But yeah, very scientific typing there. <laughs> well, I feel good about these typings. I do too. And I feel really good that we watched Dune. I enjoyed it. I'm really glad I was doing this episode with you because if I was doing it with anyone who had not read all the Dune, this would have been about a 10 minute episode. You know, my takeaways besides I loved this film. I had so much fun watching it. I'm so glad that I purchased it as I was watching it. And as I was kind of prepping for this episode, I was thinking, wow, I really need to read all of the Dune books again, but not before you read wheel of time, which is is the nerdogram podcast book club read for the month of April. This is a great audible option. So those of you who like audiobooks or those of you who are open to listening to audio types of things like a podcast, it seems like an excellent thing to do. I have a portion of the Wheel of Time books on my Audible account. And so I pulled this one up and started listening to it again because what I love about audiobooks is I can keep my hands busy. I'm working on stuff. I'm doing my hobbies i'm painting stuff i'm carving and i'm getting through some fantastic books this is a mainstay in modern fantasy if you have not read wheel of time this is your moment i haven't read wheel of time so i am excited for the opportunity to figure out what all the fuss is about and you're gonna get more of this from me this is one instance where i'll tell you that watching the show is not a fair substitute for reading the book. <laughs> is this your way of telling me I have to finish this one? They are I can't, both. I can't do my Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. They are both good. They are both their own thing. Mm. I feel that way about Bridgerton. I know you do. Which we'll be doing in a couple weeks. So friends, if, if you are also Bridgerton watchers, you can... Uh, look forward to that episode in a couple weeks. But next week, we're going to be doing an old favorite. Uh, my family went to Disney a couple weeks ago, and we loved the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And so uh, Lance and I thought it would be fun to rewatch the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which I will go on the record saying is the best Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And do you, you're nodding. Oh, yes. I am not. I do not disagree with that at all. <laughs> And so that's what we're going to be doing next week. So that's going to be really fun talking about Will Turner and Jack Sparrow. Um, And then of course, be reading wheel of time, but between this week and next week, you can get in touch with us. We love talking all things Enneagram. We're very active on Instagram. You can find us at Nerdogram podcast. We also have a website at nerdogrampodcast.com. and please do us a favor, rate, review, subscribe. You never have to miss an episode. Well, that's all for me. And that's all for me.